Thank you, choir, for leading us so beautifully to our instrumentalists who have led us this morning. I'm going to invite you as we continue to worship this morning to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the third chapter of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3, very specifically verses 20 through 30 this morning, verses 20 through 30. If you're new to Dawson, we are journeying through the Gospel of Mark. We're here in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and following. It never ceases to amaze me just how polarized uh, family members can be around allegiances or even co-workers around allegiances. You know this, I know this. I mean, you can show a diehard Auburn fan a picture of Nick Saban and say, what are the first words that come to mind? And then you take that same picture, take that same picture to a diehard Alabama fan and say, what are the first words that come to your mind when you see this? And whether they're family members or their co-workers, so much they have in common at that place, they're divergent perspectives, divergent opinions. It can happen in sports allegiances. It certainly happens in politics, not just recently, but throughout all of our American history. You see the polarization that occurs around politics and families and uh, those that work among one another. That's exasperated, no doubt, with 24-7 coverage of the news cycle that tends to exasperate that and even polarize us further. So you can have the same people hearing the same things with vastly different perspectives and interpretations. We shouldn't be surprised, though. Uh, the, The polarization of perspectives is as old as Scripture itself. Here you have the eternal Son of God in our midst. He's healing people. He's exercising demons from people. He is calling people to leave their livelihood and to follow him, to come and be a disciple of Christ. And the polarization of perspectives is vastly different. You have people in in Mark chapter 3, who hear Jesus and come to vastly different perspectives. Look with me in your copy of God's Word at these two perspectives that we hear, one of the religious leaders of the day and one of his own family members. We take his family members' perspective first. Who is Jesus? Well, his family members thought that he was a lunatic. Verses 20 through 21, then he went home, Jesus that is, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So the crowds are pressing around Jesus and his family. His family heard it. They went out to seize him. His family went out to seize him for they were saying, what? He is out of his mind. Here is a house that Jesus goes to. It's most likely the house in Mark chapter 1 where Peter and Andrew's mother has a fever. Jesus heals It's most likely the same house in Mark chapter 2 where you have the four friends of the paralytic uh, climb up the steps and begin to clear a path to be able to drop their friend before Jesus. So Jesus comes back to this home base of ministry. Jesus' own family members begin to hear that he's teaching, he's healing, and they devise a family intervention. They want to stop him. It's the only time in the Gospels, whether it be Mark's Gospel, there's not a time in Matthew's Gospel, there's not a time in Luke's Gospel that we read of this account here. It is exclusive to Mark's Gospel. The words are powerful words. They want to seize Jesus. That, that 
word is a word that gets translated later on in the gospel when they bind Jesus, to arrest Jesus, to seize him. They, they are saying, his brothers are saying, we've got to stop him because he is crazy and he's going around saying that he's the Messiah. He's going around saying that he can heal people. We've got to come to an agreement that this has gone way too far. Now, we don't have all the background of this, but John's gospel fills us in about the reaction and the response of his brothers in John chapter 7, verse 5. Just a simple sentence, declarative in its intent here, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even Jesus' own brothers believed in who he was. In their mind, he's embarrassing the family name. and He's going around saying that he can heal people. You can imagine people saying, hey, did you hear about the paralytic that your brother healed? And you can imagine Jesus' brothers say, hey, hold on, what, what did Jesus say? You're talking about my, my brother said to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven? I mean, in your life and in my life, it can be difficult, this kind of family rivalry that can occur, sibling rivalry that can occur. In, in the 21st century, you have someone who's a part of a family that's learning to tune their guitar in the basement, and the next thing that you know, they're, they're trying out for the voice, and they're, they're an American Idol. And you can uh, be assured that there's some family adjustment that has to occur after that. That's just my brother. It's just my sister. And if that's true in your family, if that's true in my family, of course it would be true in Jesus' own family dynamic that his brothers were beginning to wonder, what's the big deal about Jesus? Why are all these people crowding around him? Why is he saying that he can heal people? Why is he calling people to be his followers? He's just like us. He has the same parents we have. So even his brothers did not believe. And even today, if you're a follower of Jesus, the reaction of times of your family members at times of your family will be skepticism, will be doubt. If if those who walked and talked with Jesus in the flesh doubted who he was, do not be surprised that there will be those who meet your profession of faith with a bit of skepticism. Years ago, the church I was pastoring had a partnership in Amsterdam to reach North African immigrants that were living in regions of Amsterdam working. They would work for months. They would go back home. Uh, the homes that they came from were closed countries. We could not have missionary personnel living in those countries. And so the goal was to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when they go back home, that the gospel would spread. 325,000 North African immigrants living in Amsterdam. They were known at that time, they were known to be 20 followers of Jesus out of 325,000 that were living in Amsterdam. I was having a conversation with two of those believers. I asked a young man, maybe 20 years old, what was it like when you became a follower of Jesus and you told your family that you were a Christian? He looked at me without any hesitation and he said, my dad looked at me and he said this, are you out of your mind? You see, for this young man to 
follow Jesus is to renounce his family's faith. For him to say yes to Jesus is really a denouncement of Islam that was uh, a, a pillar of his family. And so his dad did not greet him with applause. His dad did not say, when's the baptism? When can we invite all your family? He said, are you out of your mind? And across this world, the reaction of naming the name of Jesus at times is skepticism at times. It is denouncement of that family member. Even closer to home, the church I was pastoring was in a, a college community. And I was talking to one of our seniors who was graduating, who had uh, applied to several grad schools had her best laid plans before her of what she was going to do after graduation from the college that she was attending. She'd been visiting our church, been a part of our church for the three, four years almost of her time at college. She goes back after Christmas and she comes back to the church. She had just been with her family members at Christmas and told them that God over the course of a few months and even longer than that was moving in her heart and she began to think that maybe the best plans weren't for her to go to grad school but to spend two years in an unreached people group with the International Mission Board. Family members are, are wonderful Christian people. Her mom looked at her and said, are you really telling me that you're going to throw away your plans for a passing fad? Now listen, this is not emotional abuse going on. It's not physical abuse. But the best laid plans that this family had, the plans that their daughter had, it began to conflict and begin to clash with what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And it was at that place that there was dissonance. And it just did not make sense. And in your life and in my life, if we name the name of Christ, there are going to be times where family members who love us and friends who like us and co-workers who put up with us will look at us and say, I don't understand what you're doing. It, it doesn't make sense. They did it with Jesus. There was a cognitive dissonance between his family and Jesus. And so it will be at times with family and friends for us to follow faithfully at times will not make human sense to those that are around us. And maybe at times one of the indications that we're not following him faithfully is because no one is wondering what we are doing. No one asks, what are you doing? Maybe when it makes sense to everyone around us, it might be an indication that we're not following him where he calls us to go in your life and in my life. So here's the perspective. His own family members, they hear Jesus, they see Jesus, and they say, is he a lunatic? There's another perspective in Mark chapter 3. It's not the perspective of family members. It's the perspective of the religious leaders of the day. How would they interpret Jesus' teachings? How would they interpret him calling those to follow him? Well, you know how they did? They didn't say, is he crazy? They said, I think he's a liar. I think he's a liar. Because what Jesus was saying, I am the son of God. I'm the one who can forgive sins. It came to be a clash a clash of worldviews to the religious leaders of the day, and their response is, he is a liar. Read with me in your copy of God's Word, starting in verse 22, the perspective 
of the scribes of the day. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, Mark chapter 3, verse 22, were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him. This is Jesus. He said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand and is coming to an end. But no one No one, verse 27, can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So truly, I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Some of you are new to Dawson. Some of you maybe are new to the Christian church. And this is the first time you've ever heard this passage of scripture. And it can be a passage that seems a little bit confusing. You might might be listening to this and say, I don't quite understand what Jesus is talking about here. There's some of you that have been following Jesus for decades. You've been a Sunday school teacher, and maybe there was an inquisitive uh, person in your class who you were going through the Gospels. You came to this section, and that person raised their hand and said, what, what is Jesus talking about? Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are some translations that talk about this being the unpardonable sin. Maybe you were walking through the Gospels with your own children, and you came to this section, and one of your sons or daughters asked you, Dad, Mom, what, what is Jesus talking about here? What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Early in my Christian life, I, I remember hearing this preached at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes message and, 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 and meeting, and the message was on uh, this gospel account, and I remember going to one of my classmates and saying, what, what, is, what is the unpardonable sin? What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? And it was in that moment that I, I was told that that's when you uh, swear in the name of Jesus. So you never swear in the name of Jesus because that's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And so I was like, well, okay. I, you know, but that's not what that is. That's not what that means whatsoever here. And it's a good indication that if you take a passage of Scripture out of its context, and you treat it sort of like a fortune cookie proverb, you just remove it from its context, and you let it stand all by itself here, that it can end up becoming a pretext for what it doesn't actually mean. And this is a really good example of a passage that sometimes is removed uh, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and there's an ominous tone to it, and there's a, there's a sense of introspection and maybe anxiety that some in this church have maybe have felt, saying, I, I wonder if I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? And, and if I have, could you imagine the weight, if that's true, that to swear in the name of Jesus is an unforgivable sin? And so if you've ever done that, you can never be forgiven. That, that would cause a tremendous amount of anxiety, wouldn't it? So we better pause and ponder, what actually does this mean? Okay, so let's go back. Let's think about it in its context here. The scribes are coming down from Jerusalem because they have their minds made up of who Jesus is. They have clipboards in hand. 
Some of you are teachers. You know what it's like to have the assistant principal, the principal be in the back of the room, and they're giving you an evaluation there on the clipboard. And ultimately, the scribes come down, and they're not evaluating Jesus. They are giving a pronouncement of who Jesus is. They're not investigating this. They're not bringing Jesus off to the side and saying, hey, let's ask you a couple of questions here. They're not bringing the disciples in saying, hey, let's investigate who Jesus says he is. They are coming with a pronouncement, and the pronouncement is that he is possessed by Beelzebul. This in that first century world, that meant, Beelzebul meant actually the Lord of evil spirits. The prince of demons, Jesus helps us with this in verse 23. He makes a one-to-one connection to Satan. So here the scribes are saying, as they come down to Jerusalem, don't listen to him. He's from the evil one. So we've got a conflict here. Jesus is healing people. He's exercising demons. And the religious leaders of the day are saying, he is the enemy. That's a conflict. That's a difference of perspective. So Jesus says, well, let me give you two images. We have a kingdom divided against itself that will ultimately fall. We have a house that's divided against itself that will ultimately fall. Then he says, let me tell you a parable. Jesus, when he says, let me tell you a parable, he is notifying for us that what he's saying isn't literal, but it's ultimately metaphorical. So we need to say, what does this actually mean? After he says, I'm going to tell you a parable. He says, no one enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is inviting us to consider who's the strong man? Whose house is this? What does it mean plundering his goods? Who's binding the strong man? So Jesus has given us a parable of all that's come before in Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter 3, the strong man is Satan. The house is the kingdom of the earth. The possession, the goods are actually people that are in bondage. They're victims to Satan's work upon this earth. And so Jesus is saying, I'm stronger. I'm coming. I'm binding the evil one. My life, my ministry, all that you've seen is me against Satan. That's what I've been doing with the exorcisms. That's what I've been doing with the healing. That's what I've been doing with my teaching. It's not that I'm from the evil one. I'm against the evil one here. Jesus' ministry is a living, breathing, walking eviction notice to Satan. That's why there's all, if you read through Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3, there's all this conversation about exorcism, all these conversations about demons. Why? Because Jesus has entered into this kingdom and there's a clash. And the religious scribes, they see everything that's going on and their interpretation is that man is from the evil one. And Jesus says, what? That's a house divided. That's a kingdom divided. I'm against the evil one. I'm coming to evict the evil one. So then he gives us this word about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And this helps us understand it. Because the scribes were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They were seeing the same miracles. They were hearing the same teaching. And they were attributing it to Satan himself. So they're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because they see the work of God and they attribute it to the evil one. 
They see the things of God, and they say they're from the evil one. So blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is not some random sin that a Christian could commit. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is the very posture and position of the scribes who hear the message of Jesus. They see the, they see the healing of Jesus, and they say it is from the evil one. It is a direct contradiction of the ministry of Jesus. It's not an ignorant person who's wailing on the street corner, God is dead, God is dead. That's not what that is. It is someone informed. It's a scribe who has the law, a scribe who is, has proximity to God but not intimacy with God. So how can that be something that occurs in your life and in my life? How can a person in the 21st century blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Well, we have to ask, how can we stand in the position of the scribes? Well, it could be this way. It could be that a person hears the word of God taught, knows the gospel, maybe has grown up in the church, has seen the work of God all around them, changed lives all around them, but rejects it all. And more than rejecting it all, actively works against it is trying to lead other people to not only uh, deny the truth, but to see the things of God and say they're evil. So a person who has proximity to the teaching of God, has proximity to the church, has proximity to life change all around them, but there's no intimacy and there's deliberate rejection of the things of God and deliberate deception. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So it isn't a 13-year-old who has a convicted conscience that is asking, has I, have I ever in my life uh, blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And that actually is probably an indication that the Spirit of God is in them that they would even ask that question. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit is rejecting the gospel and it's working against the gospel and it's, it is ascribing to God ultimately things of Satan here. It is a hard, hard hard heart. And it is a place that a person can willfully choose. It is a perspective that was open to the scribes of Jesus' day. And it is a perspective that could be open to you today. It could be open to our family members and our friends who know the gospel, who've grown up in proximity to the church, but they, they, they resist it. They say, no, no, no. And I'm going to work against it. This is evil when it's the things of the Lord. And what Jesus says here is a word that we need to hear. It is an unforgivable, unpardonable sin in the sense that God allows us in the hardness of our heart to resist his work in our life. And there is a destination for any person in the sanctuary, any person in this world who resists the free gift of salvation. There is a destination, and that destination is a real place with a real enemy. And that place is hell, and that enemy is Satan. You can't read the Gospels 
apart from this real conflict, this real clash between the things of God and the things of Satan. And there are times where we, we think, well, a loving God, a loving God could, could never damn a person for a sin. A, a loving God could, could never ultimately damn a person for their rejection. I'm always reminded of C.S. Lewis's wonderful analysis of this in his book called The Great Divorce, and it's a, a passage that always rings true to me as I think of our own decisions to make here on earth. There are only two kinds, Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. There's no person who is apart from the grace of God. When they turn to God, God's grace will capture them. But they are people who resist his work. They are people that work against his grace. And ultimately, God says, your will be done. And so all of us that are in the sanctuary this morning, we have a decision to make. We have a perspective to be had in your life and in my life. It very well may be that your perspective is, is the perspective of his family members. That all this talk about Jesus is lunacy. Or maybe your perspective is the perspective of the scribes or religious leaders of the day. All of this talk of Jesus, it is a lie. But if he is who he says he is, if he did the things that he did, claimed the things that he did, there's only one true response to who Jesus is. And it isn't that he's a liar, it isn't that he's a lunatic, but ultimately it is the response that he is the Lord of all. What is your response today? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Your response is not just in your mind, but your response is in your life. And may our response, not only today, but in the days to be, be the great response of that great hymn hundreds of years ago, all hell the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball join him and all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all, oh, that with yonder sacred throne we at his feet may fall, will join the everlasting song. And what church? Crown him. Let us pray. Lord God, we have a response in light of your word, a response to not Lord, over you, but to submit to you. You are the Lord of lords. You're the King of kings. And there are times where to submit to your will will look foolish to those that we love and those that care for us. And there, from a human perspective, there are times where it just doesn't make sense. So give us the courage to follow you faithfully. 
even when it's met with skepticism, even when it's met with incredulity, help us, help us to follow you faithfully. Help us not to submit to the temptation, God, of allowing you just to have little aspects of our life, but every part of who we are, from what we think to what we say to what we do, ultimately comes under the purview of your Lordship. So today, we join that wonderful hymn and crown you Lord of every aspect of our life. There's no sphere, there's no part of our life that's off limits to you. So may that be the posture of our response even this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.